Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday night. It is February the 24th, 2023, the last Friday in the month of February. I apologize for being an hour late this evening, but as the saying goes, better late than never. Sometimes life gets in the way of the things we want to do, uh, and I wound up uh, getting here a little bit later than I wanted to, but I'm here, you're there, and, and that's what really matters. By the way, if you like this program, please share the link to as many folks as you can. Be part of what I've come to call my bucket brigade of truth, because truth is an almost impossible commodity to come by these days, especially when we're dealing with the mainstream media and even programs that we think uh, might be on our side. Um, We really need to look for objective facts, and that means considering multiple viewpoints on any issue you know there's a joke that when a couple gets divorced there's actually three sides to the divorce case his hers and the truth and we've gotten to a point and this really disturbs me greatly where in america today people want to keep hearing the same statements and the same viewpoints and the same issues repeated endlessly. I remember as a kid, I had certain favorite uh, stories my mom would read to me when I was four or five years old, three years old, whatever. And it was the same thing over and over and over. I guess there is comfort in the stability of the same story and the same focus. And that's not what I'm going to do. Because we need to branch out. We need to consider other viewpoints. We need to also look at ourselves and dig deeply and ask, are we getting it right? The person that I am most often most critical of is me. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, if you want to look at the Republicans, and, you know, I'm a registered Democrat, full disclosure, the problem is the Democrats are no longer Democrats. They're not even close to being Democrats. They've become something ugly and dangerous. Uh, I'm a labor guy. My dad was a construction worker. Those of you familiar with who I am know my life story. My my dad was a plumber on construction. Not, he didn't do repair work. He, he did construction. He worked at the World's Fair. He worked on Kennedy International Airport. He helped to build things. And my mom came here ahead of the Holocaust as a 13-year-old. And my father and his buddies in the construction trades were always my heroes. Without them, we wouldn't have houses to live in or factories in which to manufacture anything or schools to hopefully educate our kids or hospitals to hopefully treat the sick. Construction workers, the trades people, they used to call them tradesmen, and more and more women are now getting into these fields. So as a matter of fairness, trades people perhaps is what we should say, or or trades workers uh, are really professionals when you come down to it. My dad went through a five-year apprenticeship to become a plumber. They didn't just hand them a wrench and say, hey, have at it. Lots of luck. And some of my friends to this day are in the construction trades, 
And these folks do dangerous, backbreaking, filthy work. And sometimes they could be out of work for months, uh, feast or famine, overtime one week and no work the next week. And my dad went through that, and I remembered my mom uh, all too frequently feeding us, you know, um, pasta and cheese or, or tuna fish sandwiches when my dad was out of work to conserve the money so they could make the mortgage payments and keep the lights on. Tough deal. And all too often, I don't know what's wrong with our species, but people will look at other people and say, wow, he or she has it better than I do. They don't want to consider how many people have it worse than they do, but they'll look at someone who they believe is doing better and very often get angry and frustrated. And the more that the economy heads into the crapper, because that's where it's headed, you look at inflation. You look at how it's becoming ever more difficult for people to pay their bills. I just saw an interesting article that said that the average family now spends a thousand dollars a month on car loans or, or leasing expenses, a thousand dollars per month. And more and more of these families are falling behind. It's almost like the, the bubble that burst in 2008. And what's not being considered, and, and, I, and I take issue with those folks, by the way, who get upset with people that work in fast food restaurants making $15 an hour. I've had some interesting discussions uh, when I've done speaking events lately. Oh, my gosh, how much more do you expect me to pay for a hamburger? Well, can you live on $15 an hour? I don't think so, especially in places like New York City. You know, Henry Ford, uh, who I revile, by the way, he was anti-Semite. Um, there were rumors that he uh, was friends with Adolf Hitler and so forth. But as a business model, he came up with a very successful model that everyone scoffed at in the beginning. He realized that if he was going to be successful in selling the Model T Ford that he was cranking out, that the workers who built the cars needed to be able to afford to buy the cars. So he paid them decently, kept the price of the car low, and the rest, as they say, is history. Today, I wonder how many people who work at McDonald's can afford to buy McDonald's food. The lunacy is that we are running up a down escalator that is picking up speed. And I've had people say to me, my gosh, $15 an hour, and all they do is flip hamburgers, and this should be a temporary job, and this is supposed to be for kids, not adults. Well, if you go to fast food restaurants, half the time you're going to see an adult standing in the window handing you the bag with food in it. So I don't care what it was supposed to be. When people lose their jobs, high-tech workers being displaced by foreign workers from India, for example, computer programmers and the like, they go from making a, a really handsome paycheck that pays the bills, pays their mortgage, to nothing. And if you're 50 years old, if you're 55 years old, if you're 43 years old and you lose a job in the computer industry with all the foreign workers being brought in because our government uh, is run by politicians who depend on campaign contributions, which are nothing more than bribes, it's harder and harder for American workers to keep up. If you bring in an army of third world workers who are willing to accept third world wages under third world working conditions, that becomes the new normal for American workers. So if American workers are now competing with third world workers for their jobs that have to accept those third world wages and conditions, America becomes a third world country. Are we there yet? Think about that.
And so increasingly, high-tech workers losing their jobs go to work at McDonald's, either as a primary job, God forbid, or as a way of supplementing their income. And when people can't pay the bills, they are desperate to get their hands on money so that they don't lose their homes to foreclosure, they don't get evicted from their apartments, they don't have their car towed away because they failed to make the payments. The Democrat Party, make no mistake, is the party of the handout. How many times has Joe Biden, because of COVID, said, we're going to give you more money. Here's more money. Have some more money. Why? He's a man who knows how to accept money, I think. And he figured, hey, if I want to attract voters, I can buy their votes by giving them money, because sure as hell the Republicans aren't going to do this. So the party of the handout is the Democrat Party. And the more that inflation eats away at the purchasing power of American families, the more that American voters are pushed to the left to vote for the party of the handout. People vote their pocketbook, okay? The gazillionaires vote their pocketbook. The, the, the people that are lucky enough to have solid careers and making good paychecks will vote for the party that they believe furthers their business, furthers their opportunities to make more money. People vote their pocketbook. When Clinton was running for election, the people in his campaign hung up a sign on the wall that said, it's the economy, stupid. Well, if it's the economy, stupid, what happens when Americans can't afford to turn the lights on when they come home from their third job at night? They will vote for the party that offers subsidies for their electric bill or subsidies for housing or food stamps to help them buy dinner. That is an advocate for that kind of a hand. That is the Democrat Party. So as we make it more and more difficult for families to support themselves, we push them into the arms of the waiting Democrat Party. And this is not the Democrat Party of old, because the Democrat Party of old was concerned about immigration law enforcement. It was the Republicans who wanted the open borders to placate the business owners, okay? Businesses are all in the same business, and that business is making a profit and minimizing overhead, minimize labor, minimize the cost of materials. Uh, There's a practice done in engineering called cost out. Companies will hire brand new engineers and have them sit at the workbenches figuring out ways to make switches and light bulbs and all sorts of electronic components a little bit more cheaply than they used to. And the idea is if they sell, you know, 3 million widgets every year and they could make a widget for 1.2 cents less because of the activities of the engineers, you multiply that tiny number by the millions of products that they sell and suddenly the money becomes significant to the bean counters. Never mind that what they're turning out is now crap. It doesn't even come close to the products upon which that company built its reputation, for a short period of time, people will continue to buy those products because they see that trusted name on the packaging, okay? But after a while, when these items fail, when they don't hold up, when they're not reliable, guess what happens to the reputation of the company? It goes out the window. And very often, and this is the interesting thing about this, because I had an argument on a radio talk show Gosh, I guess it was last year. The gentleman who I was on was the staunch conservative, and he said to me, Mr. Cutler, 
in America under capitalism, there's a guarantee of opportunity, but not a guarantee of outcome. And I disagreed. I said, wait a minute. How do you have a guarantee of opportunity when you keep on importing more foreign workers than the number of new jobs that are being created? There's no guarantee of opportunity. And as for guarantee of outcome, there sure as hell is a guarantee of outcome for the people at the top of the food chain. They have golden parachutes and all sorts of other ways of walking away from their jobs with millions of dollars in their pocket while the poor bastards who worked for them busted their tails, came in before sunrise, ignored their lunch break, stayed until after dinner without remuneration. They didn't get paid extra. They did it because they were dedicated to the job. They wouldn't take vacation days. Americans are notorious for not taking all the vacation time they can. And they also are fearful of losing their jobs. So they bust their tails. The CEO of the company or the COO or the CFO um, screw the company into the ground. They go out the door with millions of dollars, and the people that lose their jobs are waltzed out of the building very often with an, by an armed security guard who makes certain that, God forbid, they don't take a pen or the, state, the company uh, stapler with the company logo on it. What guarantee does the, the, the poor worker at the bottom of the rung have? None. And the people at the top of the food chain, they have a guarantee of outcome. They know that when they screw up, they're going to go out the door with millions of dollars. We've seen it at Boeing. We've seen it at GE. We've seen it all over the place. The people at the top of the food chain are well cared for, and the people who do the grunt work, they get screwed. And, you know, I've worked with the Speakers Bureau down in Washington, and it's really a privilege because very often – the people that I, I speak to are, you know, the brass at the Air Force or elsewhere, generals, colonels, senior executive service, uh, civil servants working in the military. And I, and I ask a rhetorical question, and, and the response is always the same. Who do you credit with the amazing successes that the Allies had during D-Day? June 6, 1945. Who do we credit with the success? Was it General Eisenhower and the other strategists? And Eisenhower, to me, was one of our best presidents and one of our best generals. Was it his brilliance and the brilliance of all the others? Or was it the gallantry of the soldiers who either gave up their lives or came home grievously, irreparably injured? Now, you see, I would argue that it's a shared credit. Without the strategy, D-Day would have failed. But without the bravery, the gallantry of the soldiers, it would have failed also. Business is not unlike that. I don't care what kind of a company you start up. If you don't have dedicated employees coming in every day, punching the time clock, and getting the job done, companies fail. This should be a team effort. And so in the old days, it made sense because the Democrats look out to the workers, the Republicans were looking out to the business owners. There was balance. But the Democrats are on to a new strategy. I believe. And in fact, I wrote an article for Front Page Magazine a while back, and what I called it was, for the Democrats to succeed, Americans must fail. The worse the economic hardships that Americans experience, the more likely they are to vote for the Democrats who promise them a handout. And the greed that we see from the right is insufferable. People who are doing quite well complain about the price of a hamburger freaks me out. I was raised by parents who taught me to live and let live, that everyone needs to get a break, a fair shake. 
$15 an hour is not a lot of money, not in this day and age, not in 2023. Maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, $15 an hour would have been okay. But today? And the more that Americans are forced to take subsidies, food stamps, whatever, the more that you are pushing those voters to the radical left and destroying the conservative movement in the United States. Think about that. This is kind of like sawing off a branch on a tree but finding out that you're sitting on the wrong side of the branch. So when the branch falls, you go with it. We need to have the ability to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. Uh, My parents were amazing. Sadly, I lost them to cancer when I was in college. But they gave me such great advice that helps me today, decades later. One of the things they taught me, they said, Mike, if you have an argument with a friend, you might be right, but you might not be right. What you really need to do is sit down, moment of reflection, and try to put yourself in the position of your friend that you just had the argument with. Is he possibly justified for being angry? Have you done something that if it was done to you, you wouldn't be happy? And I've always done that, and I've applied that principle throughout my life in dealing with other people, participating in debates. Ask yourself about the people on the other side of the debate. Is there anything about what they believe in that maybe I'm missing? We should all be doing that. See, the Democrats don't want to have debates because they know they can't sustain their positions on most issues. Now, if you're confident in the position that you hold, you should welcome a debate because this is the wonderful opportunity that you will have to provide opposition to those people who disagree with you to convince other people that you're right, they're wrong. It's a wonderful opportunity. But if you know that you're peddling a lot of nonsense, the last thing you want is a debate. The last thing you want is to be asked questions because the lunatic left knows they can't answer the questions. A lot of what they call for is irrational and illogical. But the funny thing is, if you keep on saying illogical and irrational things, uh, and Goebbels and Hitler figured this out for the, the Nazi regime, the Third Reich, It was called the big lie. Just lie and lie and lie and keep telling the lie, and pretty soon people will think the lie is the truth. So think of the things that we're told by open borders advocates, and it's not just the lunatic left. You have conservatives on the same side of this. If you can't arrest 11 million, the least you can do is give them lawful status. Well, first of all, it's been 11 million for 20 years. By now, we're probably up to 40 million, especially with the Biden administration and what it has been doing. Um, But whatever the number, what kind of nonsense is that? If you can't arrest people who violate the law, reward people for violating the law. Just let that sink in. Just ask yourself, is that rational? And I've had people ask me this question almost every time I do a speaking event. Mr. Cutler, if we can't arrest all these people, what would you do with them? And, you know, there's an old saying that Jews tend to answer questions with another question. I'm a Jewish kid from Brooklyn. So I tell them, rather than give them an answer, I'm going to ask them a question. And my question is, if you want to know what do you do with the aliens you can't arrest, ask police what they do with the drunk drivers they don't find. Okay? And the answer is simple. You arrest as many law violators as you can. You impose on them significant penalties for their violations of law, and you publicize your activities. 
Why do you publicize the activities? So that you deter other people from violating the law. The reason the criminal justice system is falling apart is so-called bail reform, reform and criminal justice reform. Oh, it's not fair to lock people up. Well, it's not fair to turn violent thugs loose who kill and injure innocent people, is it? So something very interesting happened today. Uh, I went to the Justice Department website, and God knows <clears throat> you never know what you're going to find. I call it dumpster diving these days. <laughs> I, and I called it that uh, during the Obama administration also. So there was a speech that was given earlier today, and this really blew my mind. Let me share this with you, because this goes to the fact that the advocates for criminal justice reform and not prosecuting criminals, we're going to get the guns off the street, but not the criminal wielding the guns. How many times have we seen that? It is not difficult to get your hands on a firearm. I don't care what laws you pass. Guns will always be accessible. You deter people from carrying firearms illegally by punishing them, not by taking away the guns and turning them back out onto the street where they can get another gun and commit more crime. Okay? This is insanity. This is absolute sheer insanity. New York used to be the safest big city in America because we had the most stringent gun policies in America. What did that mean? If a police officer found you and you had a firearm and no permit, you were going to go to jail probably for two years or more. So people quickly figured out, I better not have a gun. And they had the anti-crime units who would go out there specifically looking to make gun arrests to get criminals off the street with firearms. In fact, I did a lot of work with the anti-crime units back in the 70s and early 80s when we worked closely with local law enforcement. It made sense. The immigration laws are not about racism, the nonsense being spewed. It's about protecting America from criminals and terrorists and spies and human rights violators and people who pose a threat to public health uh, and public safety and also who pose a threat to the jobs and wages of Americans. Go to Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182. It lays it out. This is about protecting public health, public safety, national security, and the jobs and wages of Americans. Very simple. And you can throw in the environment for good measure at the same time. Okay way it was presented to the American people, this is about racism. This is about bigotry. No, it's not. I've arrested illegal aliens from all over the world, from Israel, from England, from Canada, from Japan. Yes, from Latin America, but also from Jamaica. People are people. Human nature is universal. Every ethnic group, every race, every religion has the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as an agent, I saw it every single day. But the American people have been convinced that immigration law enforcement is about racism. This is an act of bigotry by our government. Nonsense, okay? So people are being released. Jail sentences are being reduced, very often eliminated. And so I was really surprised when a few hours ago I went to the Justice Department website, and here is the title of a press release. And I want to tell you about this. And then I want to get to the fact that there was a hearing held this week in Yuma, Arizona, by the uh, Republican-led House Judiciary Committee chaired by Jim Jordan. And, and it's really important we talk about that. But I, I just want you to understand the hypocrisy that we're being exposed to with all this garbage about criminal justice reform and bail reform and all this other happy nonsense. So here's the title 
of this press release issued today, Friday, February 24th. Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General Marshall Miller delivers testimony at the United States Sentencing Commission public hearing on proposed amendments to the federal sentencing guidelines. And the upshot of all this, believe it or not, where people are being attacked sexually, where wards are being attacked sexually, these are young people, they are actually calling for an increase an increase in minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines. Put people away for a longer period of time if they sexually assault these people. I happen to agree. But you're not hearing that kind of a philosophy where almost any other violations of law are concerned. And that is craziness. That is craziness. Because the whole idea is to deter people from committing the crimes. We imprison people in America for three reasons. Number one, to punish people who violate the law. Otherwise, there's no law without punishment. Right? If, if, if you want to drive 100 miles an hour through a school zone and there are no consequences, then the speed limit is irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. See, the laws of nature are immutable. Speed of light in a vacuum is approximately 186,320 miles per hour. And it's not enforced by a cop with a radar gun in a summons book. These are nature's laws. It just is because it is. But the laws that human beings legislate mean nothing if no action is taken to enforce the laws. Why would you care about being pulled over by a cop if the cop couldn't do anything to you, even if you were driving 80 miles an hour through a 20-mile-an-hour school zone. You'd laugh. You might be annoyed that the cop bothered you and slowed you down by asking you to pull over, right? So you impose penalties that are commensurate with the danger that you create by violating the law. At least that's how it's supposed to work. That's why a person who is convicted of murder goes to jail for a lot longer than somebody who snatches a person, runs away without hurting anybody. Two different kinds of crimes. The punishment should be commensurate with the severity of the danger posed by the crime that was committed, right? Murder is the ultimate crime when you come down to it. So here they're saying we need to increase the punishment. Why? Because you want to make certain that the punishment fits the crime. We always hear that. That's item number one. Item number two, if someone is violent, you want to get him or her off the street so they cannot hurt somebody else. Doesn't that make sense? You don't want someone running around with a knife or a gun or God knows what hurting and killing people. And if someone has shown that they cannot be trusted to not act in a sociopathic fashion, then what are the solutions? Well, the only solution is imprisonment. Because law-abiding, innocent people have the right to expect that the government, at a minimum, will protect them and their families. You would think. Safety first. I actually used that expression in one of my congressional hearings. Safety first. And the third reason for putting people in jail is to deter anybody else who might be thinking of committing a similar crime. Gee whiz, I'd like to rob the bank, but... The idea of going to jail for 15 years or whatever the punishment is, uh, that, that's not good. I don't want to give up 15 years of my life sitting in a cage, so I guess I won't rob the bank. 
You know, that's kind of like the philosophy behind it. You punish people because they violate the law so that the law is meaningful. You punish people as a deterrent to other people. And you punish people, put them in jail to protect innocent victims or would-be victims. It's very straightforward. And here the Sentencing Commission hears from the attorney, a high-ranking member of the Justice Department under the Biden administration saying basically the same thing. We have got to put people in jail for a longer period of time to make it less likely that people will be assaulted sexually. That's common sense. That's criminology 101. But we're not seeing it anywhere else. And you know what's so funny about all of the madness? A couple of years ago, a word started to be used that really gave me cause for pause. And the word was disruptive. It used to be that if someone came out with a better mousetrap, you know, the old saying, build a better mousetrap and the world will be the pathway to your door. So someone comes out with a new product and they would say it's revolutionary. It's a game changer. It's whatever. Suddenly it's disruptive. When I was a kid, if one of my classmates was disruptive, that wasn't a good day for that classmate or for the parents because the school would call up the parents and they'd say, Johnny is being disruptive. You need to come down. We've got a problem. That was not a good thing. We have been convinced over time through the use of language that disruptions are good. Disruptions are good. Is it good when the electric power grid is disrupted? Is it good when the trains are disrupted or the airlines are disrupted because of a snowstorm? No, it's a negative. But suddenly, the, the propagandists and the Orwellian linguistic strategists tried to convince Americans that disruptions were a positive development. And think of how disrupted everything is. You can have, you know, any sex you want. Sex is fluid. And we go on and on through this whole crazy quilt list of lunacy that's doing tremendous harm to America, American society, disrupted. We've got to put that genie back in the bottle. We have to put common sense at the front of the line. We have to put decency at the front of the line. You know, um, one of the problems that we have is that all too often people who identify themselves as being conservatives refer to their opponents as liberal. There is nothing liberal about the Democrat Party today. No, not at all. I'm a liberal. I was raised to be a liberal. And before you get all excited, realize what that means. I was raised by my parents and my teachers to believe that the First Amendment was sacrosanct, that every person has the right to his or her opinion. Every person has an equal right to air their opinion in public. I don't have to agree with you, and I don't care if it's about abortion or school prayer or the Second Amendment, any issue, all of them on the table. And we should have an absolute right, an unfettered right, to stand up and articulate our position, and we should be supportive of that, not their position, but their right to do so. What's the old expression? I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That's liberalism at its best. Of the Democrats, practitioners of liberalism with their cancel culture, seriously? They want to cancel everybody and anybody who disagrees with them. 
It blows my mind. The 1619 Project. Slaves came to America in 1619, therefore America is forever unredeemable. Really? Funny story, and I'm probably going to write a piece about it. During the Democrat convention in 1924, the Democrat Party tried to divest one of its biggest groups from the party. They said, no, we want to kick you out, and they couldn't do it. Do you know what group they tried to remove from the Democrat Party? The KKK. That's right, the KKK. And everyone, when I saw the article, it was amazing. The article was written in the New York Times. And they, were, they wrote it to put in context what they had um, seen with the Republican Party when Donald Trump got nominated. So they compared Trump, of course, to the KKK. There's a surprise. But it was amazing because in their blind anger at Trump, you know, Trump derangement syndrome, I guess, as some people might call it, they didn't realize that they were airing some pretty serious dirty laundry from the Democrat Party that most people probably didn't even know. That in 1924, the Democrat Party tried to eject the KKK and were successful. So if this is really cancel culture, if because of slavery in 1619, America is irredeemable, what does that say about the Democrat Party? Because that only happened less than 100 years ago, 99 years ago. 99 years ago, the Democrat Party could not divest itself of the KKK. Should they be canceled? I don't know. You tell me. Ask your friends who are Democrats about that. If the KKK was an integral major part of the Democrat Party less than 100 years ago, why isn't the Democratic Party being canceled? Just something to think about. This is insanity that is happening in our country today. You have the Justice Department saying that we need to increase the penalties for people who sexually abuse wards. I agree. But the same Democrat Party is fully in on woke. Really? How inconsistent is that? Just stuff I hope you will think about. We need to make certain that we look out for our fellow Americans, folks. And if there's real concern about jail sentences and crime in America, why are we waiting for a kid like this 19-year-old thug who killed a reporter, shot a mother, and killed her 9-year-old girl? He's a gangbanger. They call him a career criminal. Now, there's a career to aspire to. Why isn't anyone looking at what happened to turn this kid into that thug that committed that crime? And it was remarkable, if you saw the body camera from the cops, the cops are trying to wrestle him to the ground. He's screaming, I can't breathe, and nobody was anywhere near his face, his neck, or his chest. He's on the ground thrashing around, screaming, I can't breathe. Terrible George Floyd impersonation, perhaps. You know, I mean, how do you explain this? I can't breathe. There is an ideology out there that is pitting one race against another, one economic group against another. Look at how America is being splintered in so many ways by so many factions. Uh, You know, I was watching Fox News, and they said, we've got to get away from identity politics. And I agree. And yet the very next article, so a story, was about how likely Latinos were to vote for Republicans. Isn't that identity politics? You know, if you want to talk about demographics, it could make sense. 
if you want to talk about uh, who will vote for which candidate, depending on what their level of education is or what their careers are or whether they live in cities or on farms, that makes sense. Mass transit is a big issue for somebody who lives in a city, not for somebody who lives on a farm. Somebody who lives on a farm might be very concerned about the cost of soybeans. Do you think anybody who's commuting on a New York City subway car gives a rat's tail about the price of soybeans? Of course not. So those demographics make sense. Young people getting out of college have different concerns from old people who are on Social Security. People who have children have different concerns from people who don't have children. These are reasonable ways of looking how voters may see issues and candidates. But the idea about the black voter, the Latino voter, the white voter, are you serious? And we hear it all the time, even as the very same reporters say, hey, we shouldn't be engaging in identity politics. That is what identity politics is. And all of these factions are dividing our country up into tiny little pieces. And as Abraham Lincoln very wisely observed, the country divided against itself will not stand. Instead of looking to focus on what makes us most similar as Americans, we're being divided up in how many different ways? By race, by religion, by ethnicity, by socioeconomic standing. Poor people have different concerns from the wealthy. Let's be honest with each other. We should be concerned when people are no longer able to afford housing for themselves because that pushes them into the arms of the party of the handout and will ultimately destroy the Republican Party, won't it? This is a level of greed that really upsets me greatly. We should be better than that. We should be better than that. People say, oh, so-and-so is a bleeding-heart liberal. Well, don't we want friends who are compassionate? If you think compassion is a vice, I don't think I want to talk to you. Right? Compassion is a vice. We need to be compassionate first and foremost, however, for our families and then our fellow Americans. We have misplaced compassion in America. Compassion has been used as a weapon against us in America. Don't you feel bad for the billion people around the world who have no electricity? I might feel bad for them, but I don't think we can invite them in. And so we know there's a crisis on the southern border because we're told that every day of the week. But here's a funny thing. I did a speaking event earlier this week, and I asked the people at the event, and my son, my youngest son accompanied me, which is always fun when we get to have an evening together. I said, do you folks care how my son and I came here this evening? Uh, we're, we're from New York. We came to New Jersey. Does it matter to you if I took the Verrazano Bridge or the George Washington Bridge or the Lincoln Tunnel or the Holland Tunnel? Do you care? Do you care if I drove down the Jersey Turnpike or the Garden State Parkway or took city streets? And the people in the audience said, well, no, why should we? I said, well, you shouldn't. But that's a metaphor for how aliens enter the United States. And we're being told by Republicans that we've got to secure the southern border. It's like saying we've got to secure the Verrazano Bridge. Well, what about the other ways that you can get from New York to New Jersey? We've got to ignore those? Are those less significant? The fentanyl coming into our country from the northern border, somehow is that less dangerous than fentanyl coming across the Mexican border? You know, during one of my very first hearings, I said that the immigration system, and make no mistake, it's a system, it's a sealed system, system. The sealed system is not unlike a balloon. If you squeeze a balloon at one end, it's going to bulge at another end, won't it? 
You know, most of the narcotics flowing into the United States from Latin America used to come through Florida. If you ever saw the TV series, and it was a fun series, Miami Vice, most of the cocaine from Colombia and Bolivia was coming into the United States through southern Florida until the Reagan administration charged George Herbert Walker Bush, the vice president, unlike Kamala Harris, he did a credible job. She can't figure out how to do anything except maybe draw circles and Venn diagrams, according to what I saw, although I don't know why that was such a big deal. That's the least of the problems we have with her. But what happened was the U.S. Coast Guard and the U.S. Navy were tasked with intersecting these boats. And they intercepted the boat, seized the drugs, arrested the, tr- the smugglers, and then we went after the cartels in Colombia. So in short order, the Colombian cartel says, hey, you know, this is not working for us. We're getting arrested. Our drugs are being seized. We're losing a fortune. Maybe we should move the smuggling activities from the water to the Mexican border. We give up half of our profits to the Mexicans, but we also get insulated from law enforcement because the people who are actually smuggling the drugs into the United States will be Mexicans and not Colombians. And almost overnight, and I saw this up at DEA, I was at DEA Intel at the time, and then I was with the OSADEF program, the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. Overnight, Roosevelt Avenue and other avenues in Queens that were the headquarters of the Colombian cartels became Mexican. Overnight. It was in a matter of a couple of months. It was a transition. Boom. It went from Colombian to Mexican. Well, I told you why. Okay? And so understand that it's like getting into your car and turning on the radio to hear what the traffic is like. I want to get from Brooklyn to Manhattan. Do I take the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, the tunnel? How do I go? And if they tell you there's an accident or there's a breakdown on the highway, you take a different route into the city to get around the obstruction. The smugglers are doing the very same thing along the borders, and it's not just the Mexican border. And, in fact, there's been articles about how there's been a huge, I mean, a multifold increase in alien smuggling and drug smuggling coming across the northern border. So, so here's a question that I'm going to ask you. How many miles of border do we have? We're being told to focus on the 2,000 miles of the U.S.-Mexican border. Now, make no mistake, it's a very dangerous border, and it's got to be secured. I'm not minimizing that for a moment but it's only one of the issues that we've got to address so here's my question how many miles of border does the united states have now when i asked that question at the event last week this past week someone said six thousand miles of border i guess he was thinking four thousand miles from canada two thousand miles mexican border and there you go well he also forgot that alaska has a border with canada right? And Alaska is our 50th state. But they also forgot something else. Or is it our 49th state? Forgive me. Uh, But they also forgot something else. And what did they forget? They forgot that America has 95,000 miles of coastline. So all in all, we have more than 100,000 miles of border. How many border patrol agents do you need to secure 100,000 miles of border taking into account that we need coverage 24-7, seven days a week, right? The answer is you can't hire enough Border Patrol agents. The real solution 
to border security is interior enforcement. And nobody wants to talk about it. That's the dirty little secret. We've never had meaningful interior enforcement since Eisenhower ordered the Border Patrol to head for the cities of the United States to arrest illegal aliens when he was told there were about a million illegal Mexicans living in the United States. He said if they're here illegally, they need to be arrested, they need to be deported. Period. Full stop. Get it done. That became known as Operation Wetback. By the way, in addition to 100,000 miles of border and then some, we also have well over 110 international airports. And if you look at the 9-11 Commission report, what did they find? Most of the terrorists came through international airports. What role does the Border Patrol have in arresting illegal aliens who are already present in the United States? And the answer is not their job. What job does the Border Patrol have that addresses the aliens who enter through international airports and then disappear into the night and don't leave when they're supposed to leave? Not their job. That job belongs to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and we only have about 6,000 ICE agents, and most of the work they do has nothing to do with immigration. And under Biden, none of them are doing immigration work, really. So I came across an article on a CBP, Customs and Border Protection website. Now, this is very interesting. And it said this, on a typical day in fiscal year 2022, that's last year, folks, CBP, that is Customs and Border Protection, processed 868,867 passengers and pedestrians, 263,000 incoming international air passengers and crew, 58,549 passengers and crew arriving by ship or boats, and 547,318 incoming land travelers. Wow. Wow. Went on to also note 91,605 truck, rail, and sea containers, 226,589 incoming privately owned vehicles, $9.2 $9.2 billion worth of imported products, 107,000 entries of merchandise that are air, land, and seaports of entry, um, and on and on and on, okay? And then they talked about how they conducted 179 apprehensions between ports of entry, 41 arrests of wanted criminals at U.S. ports of entry, and 1,377 refusals of inadmissible persons at U.S. ports of entry, Okay. So we are talking about nearly 900,000 people coming into the United States every day through our ports of entry, of whom 263,000 came on airplanes. Has anybody asked about what the overstay rate is now for aliens entering through ports of entry? Because prior to the Biden administration, under Trump, it was estimated that roughly half of all illegal aliens did not run our borders, but came through ports of entry, such as international airports, and then never left when they were supposed to leave. With the philosophy of letting everybody in, and now they want to use parole as another mechanism, and that's another crazy idea, again, finding ways to evade the lawful process. That's what this administration is all about, playing games with our laws and therefore playing games with public health, public safety, and national security. No one's asking about how many people are being granted authorization to enter the United States. 
who shouldn't be admitted, shouldn't get visas, shouldn't be admitted by the inspector at ports of entry. I know I was an inspector at Kennedy International Airport for four years. And every day we turned around aliens who either lied to get a visa or had a counterfeit passport or an altered visa or whatever. There were various grounds for denying entry into, an, into the United States for an alien. But all we're being told by the Republicans is keep an eye on that southern border, those 2,000 miles. And I'm going to say it again. Those 2,000 miles are very dangerous. Lots of drugs and terrorists and criminals, God knows, weapons are coming across the border. But it's not just the southern border. So why is it that that is the only focus? Why doesn't anyone talk about the Canadian border? Why is nobody talking about how many people are getting visas or entering under the visa waiver program? By the way, that dangerous and illogical visa waiver program was enacted as a pilot program by Ronald Reagan. It's both parties that are kowtowing to the globalists who write the checks for the campaigns. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, various religious organizations, the so-called NGOs, the non-government organizations that laughably refer to themselves as nonprofits as they get hundreds of millions of dollars in, co in contracts from the federal government, but they're nonprofits. Wow. Nonprofit? Really? Are you serious? All we're told is look at the Mexican border. And I'll tell you what my concern is. And I wrote about it, and I've spoken about it before. Recently, Attorney um, Speaker of the House McCarthy was asked, are you against amnesty or for it? And he said, well, I'm against it, especially when you look at what's happening on the Mexican border. Just the Mexican border? Is that the, is that the problem? And why in the world are you talking about any amnesty under any circumstances? What does a secure Mexican border have with providing tens of millions of illegal aliens who evaded the vetting process at ports of entry? Why would you give them a path to citizenship or a path to legal status? Look at the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. So let me read a couple of sections here. I've read them before, but I want to read them again to refresh your memory. Now, this report, the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel, was prepared by the federal agents and attorneys who were assigned to work with the 9-11 Commission, and the report was published by the government printing office. I make that point because this was an official report. This wasn't some supermarket tabloid announcing how much a container of milk costs today, okay? This is an official report prepared by the 9-11 Commission, at least their staff. It starts out by saying this in the preface. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they're unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. I mean, that's impossible to fathom. How you could run a federal agency and not understand that border security is national security boggles my mind. But that being said, this report goes on and says this. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe, for reasons we discuss in the following pages, that it must be made one. Well, wait a minute. They weren't talking about running the border here. They're talking about visas. When was the last time you heard any politician talk about the visa process? You're not hearing that. 
In fact, I testified to Sheila Jackson Lee at the two hearings. She called me to testify back in March of 2002 about how two of the dead terrorists from the 9-11 attacks could have been granted authorization to attend flight school six months after the terror attacks. So by then, the whole world knew that these two dirtbags were dead, and these two dirtbags were terrorists, including Mohammed Atta, the ringleader, Marwan Oshehi, the other alien, was in the cockpit of one of the other airplanes. Those two airplanes, one that uh, where Mohammed Atta was and the one of, of uh, Atta, uh, of um, Abu, uh, no, I'm trying to remember the other guy's name. Uh, but the point was, these two terrorists were in the cockpits of the two planes that slammed into the twin towers of the World Trade Center. Okay? So it was Sheila Jackson Lee, and it was Jim Sensenbrenner, the then Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who invited me to testify at that hearing in March of 2002. A couple of years later, there was going to be a hearing about alien smuggling, and I approached Sheila Jackson's counsel, and I said, you keep talking about the Mexican border. Why don't you talk about visa fraud? Because that was one of the main focuses of the 9-11 Commission. So they actually changed the topic, and it became a, a hearing about visas. And, you know, I, I said to her in, in convincing Jackson Lee that we needed to look at visas, I said, you know, if, if you look at it logically, if you have a piece of property, whether it's a house or a factory or whatever, and you build a fence, you put the fence at the furthest extremity of the property upon which the house is built. You don't lean the fence against the wall of the building, right? And I said that a properly administered visa requirement pushes America's borders to the embassies and consulates where the visas are issued. This could help to keep terrorists and bad guys off of airliners. If they need a visa, can't get one, they won't get on the airplane. Think of Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. Right? He was a Brit, so he didn't need a visa. He got on an airplane and wanted to blow up an airliner on its way into Detroit many years ago. So the way they worded the hearing, it was pushing out the borders because she understood that this was accurate. Is anyone talking about visas or how many people are being admitted legally through ports of entry? And the answer is no. All we're told is the Mexican border is the issue and maybe like they pushed uh, back in around 2005, 2006, if we could secure the Mexican border, then we could have a massive amnesty program for tens of millions of illegal aliens. We have no idea who they are, and there's no capacity to interview them, let alone do field investigations to determine anything that they tell us is actually true. Wow. Wow. So you have an agency that everyone says is screwed up and broken, and they want to use a broken agency to give lawful status and identity documents to millions of illegal aliens whose identities, potential affiliation with criminal or terrorist organizations is unknown and unknowable, and the reason they came here, unknown and unknowable. And you have Kamala Harris saying, oh, we need to get to root cause. Well, the biggest root cause for aliens coming here is they know they're going to get what they want once they come here, right? Between sanctuary cities and non-enforcement by the Biden administration, there you go. On the other side of it, why do aliens come to America in violation of law? Well, they know they can't get in legally. Why? They might be poor, and that would make it impossible for them to get visas, or they might be criminals. They might be fugitives. How many of the crimes that we read about today are being committed by aliens who have no right to be here? We have no idea because the police are told don't work with immigration. They don't even want them to ask where they were born. So you have people coming here from, like, the guy that was going to kill that uh, Iranian dissident in Brooklyn, and the newspaper headline was, 
Yonkers man. Well, Yonkers man came to the United States from Azerbaijan. That was an immigration story, but it wasn't covered as an immigration story. Okay? So think about what we're being told. We're being sold a lie, a con game. Well, if we could just secure the Mexican border, then we could look to take care of the people who are here. Why? Why? How is that in the best interest of America or Americans? So let's get to the next the next um, a piece of uh, material that's in that 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. It says this, once terrorists had entered the United States, their next challenge was to find a way to remain here. Their primary method was immigration fraud. In fact, I did my first hearing four and a half years before 9-11 on May 20th, 1997, about immigration fraud because of two terror attacks in 93, a shooting at the CIA and the bombing of the World Trade Center in February 93. Okay, so it says their primary method was immigration fraud. For example, Yusuf and Ajaj concocted bogus political asylum stories when they arrived in the United States. Mahmoud Abu Alima, involved in both the World Trade Center and landmark plots, received temporary residence under the Seasonal Agriculture Worker Program after falsely claiming he picked beans in Florida. Mohammed Salome, who rented the truck used in the bombing, this was the World Trade Center bombing in 93, Mohammed Salome, who rented that truck, overstayed his tourist visa. He then applied for permanent residency under the Agriculture Worker Program, but was re- rejected. Ayad Mahmoud Ishmael, who drove the van containing the bomb, took English language classes at Wichita State University in Kansas on a student visa. After he dropped out, he remained in the United States out of status. And we're giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens. And here you have two illegal aliens involved in the bombing of the World Trade Center that killed six, injured over a 1,000, and inflicted over a half billion dollars in damages on the World Trade Center. And then we get to the final paragraph that I want you to consider. Terrorists in the 1990s, as well as the September 11th hijackers, needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status, that's DACA folks, or applying for asylum after entering. In many cases, the act of filing for immigration benefits suffice to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. Because of what Biden has done with millions of aliens, we are now talking years down the road. Terrorists will be able to stay here for years before anyone even notices that they're here. And it finally says, terrorists were free to conduct surveillance, coordinate operations, obtain and receive funding, go to school and learn English, make contacts in the United States, acquire necessary materials, and execute an attack. And yet all that we're being asked to consider by Republicans and Democrats alike is the southern border. Does this make any sense to anybody? Is this truly in the best interest of the average American? And you know what the answer is? Of course not. And we have to push back. We need to have conversations with our neighbors. We need to explain all of this to them and make it clear that they need to go to their elected representatives to let them know that we're not the idiots that they've been playing us for. Every decision made by Congress and by our politicians should be in the best interest of we, the people. That's why I support not America first, but Americans first. Please remember that democracy is not a spectator sport. Get involved, folks. Sport is a huge Not next week, but two weeks. Have a great week.